Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first. What's astonishing you? We were at a presbytery meeting on Saturday, you and I, and a yes, bunch of other were. pastors and elders of the church in the presbytery of Charlotte, and the most astonishing thing happened within the first I would say, 10 minutes of the meeting. This is the thing that really got my attention the most. That is uh, Bob Henderson, the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, was hosting the meeting, uh, was welcoming the Presbytery, and uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church is a large, affluent, historically white congregation in an affluent and white part of our city. And he was sharing that um, they were taking a look at their um, their church and uh, seeking to do something about racism in our city, uh, looking at racism in our city, and found that there were some of their historic stained glass windows that celebrated, promoted racism and white supremacy, and that by a unanimous vote of the congregation, they have um, decided to remove four of those windows. Um, I was astonished that it was unanimous. Uh, in my mind, surely someone would raise their hand or protest and say, hey, my great-great-grandparents paid for that window. I don't care what it promotes. It needs to stay. I shared that story with the folks at Dorita Church and to my surprise, I mean, this is what is really astonishing me. Uh, and, and I think what they did was great and wonderful and beautiful. But what really astonished me was when I shared that story in the context of preaching uh, the beatitude about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, there was an audible response from the white members of the Derrida Church congregation. And I as I've been reflecting on it, I think that there are just a lot of white Christians who need stories like that mm -hmm. because they hear so many voices telling them what to be angry about and what mm -hmm. not to like and not enough stories that inspire them if, if those people can do that, then what can I do? Mm -hmm. And I was not aware of, of, of the impact that story might have. To me, it was, it was a nice illustration. Yeah. We're good. Uh, Kate's phone is ringing, but I don't think it's picking up on the mic. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I was okay. telling you to keep oh, going. Well, you were talking. I was going to. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Listen, we don't exactly have, we're not in a studio, friends. This is what they call authenticity, and I hear the Gen Zers love it. So you were surprised by the impact that that story had because people, um, yeah, was, there, was there more to that sentence? No, it, it okay. was just, um, I, I could tell that people were really inspired by that story, which I thought was a simple quote-unquote sermon illustration it was nice but I didn't see it as particularly powerful but in retrospect I can see yeah I, there there are just a number of Christians a lot of Christians a lot of white Christians who need um that kind of inspiration yeah I mean I I do think it's important to um name what's good um, where it is good and um, not miss um, just significant steps when they occur. And, I, and what I do think is important about that is um, I, I think that um, the pastor at Covenant, who is a man named Bob Henderson, is a really strategic leader. And so I think, um, he, you know, he was very thoughtful and intentional about when and how in his tenure as pastor, he approached this, which I think is good. Um, and I also think, you know, there we often 
when there's something, um, when there's something like that, a part of our history, a tradition and an image that we know is problematic, we often calculate the cost of addressing it versus the cost of not addressing it. And um, then we tend to choose to not address it because we just think, well, you know, it'll just stir up whatever. Um, but I, I think what's really important about that is we, you need to calculate the cost of addressing it now versus the cost of addressing it later, right? And you need to decide, do you want to handle how to deal with this problematic part of your community? Or do you want to just allow circumstance or an outside person handle it, right? So I think, you know, that's just really important. Um, I mean, I do, I, I was glad that he shared that story with the presbytery because A, it's not only stained glass windows, right? Like what we're saying is it's, it is a good first step to have worship services where we name the truth and ritual apologies. I, I'm not knocking those things. They're good first steps, but then they have to be um, walked out with concrete embodied action. And that's not the last piece of action. It's the first piece of action, but it's an important, um, it's an important thing. And it's an example of how white people can do the work of naming, pointing out white supremacy in their own context and dealing with it in a way that doesn't um, put them in the headspace of saying, if, if we lean into this, then we're declaring that we're trash and our ancestors were terrible people. It's acknowledging that something in us is, or, or among us, is wrong and sinful, and we're going to deal with it. Well, that. and I think it's just living out a core part of the witness of faith, which is a call to repentance, right? Absolutely. So the idea, you know, people get real, real big. And I mean, and we do this every week in Reformed worship. You confess your sins individually every week. So the idea that as a community we say like, hey, we've got resources for this. We've got a pathway to say not just individually, but as a community, sin is a factor in our lives. And when we come to awareness, we know that we can face it in Christ. And, you know, he did say, which I, which I thought was, um, significant that, you know, that, and that became a real, that process of naming the problem and coming up with, you know, not just, what they wanted to do, but having public conversations about it, right? Because you could have just made a move and not told anybody, right? But to say, hey, we, we need to not just fix this. We need to talk about why it's broken. And we need to like let the part of our community story be this is how we handled it. Um, you know, that that's really an important embodiment of like, we are a people who believe that sin is not more powerful than the reconciling cross of Jesus Christ. And so a way that we can walk that out is say, like, this is really scary. It's really scary to face this. And also the Lord is sufficient in this. And he did say like, this was a very spiritually rich um, season of growth for our community, which I mean, I, I'll just confess, it just makes me a little uncomfortable as a white person listening to that. I, I understand what he's saying. And I would expect I understand and would expect that that's true. I also just wonder how it feels to people who bear the embodied legacy of those symbols to hear that it was a spiritually rich time. I, you know, I just, I'm not saying it shouldn't be said and I'm not saying, saying it wasn't true. I'm saying like the whole conversation is very tender. And so I, you know, and I did not think that he was taking a victory lap. I think that he shared that story because he was asked to by our general presbyter to say, can we please just model and embody for one another the one practical way that we do this work? And so, and I do think you're right to point out that it is very encouraging for white people to say like, look, the point of this isn't to just say you go sit in a corner and feel like crap about yourself for the rest of eternity, right? That's not what it's or, about. Or... Deny. When it comes to racism and white supremacy, always calling upon African-Americans and say, we can do nothing until um, you guys come and, and take on this emotional right. burden of walking with us, you know, doing certain things. No, there are some things you can handle and take on. Right. No, and I and I just think um, it's just really important to be able to say we're not ashamed. I mean, just like Paul 
is always really ready to tell his story of what he used to find identity and pride in, and now he sees it as all rubbish, right? Like we have this rich history that gives us lots of places to go to say, we don't have to deny this. We don't need to hide in shame. We can just practically and pragmatically say, like we see, we see ourselves in the light of the cross and we have real work to do to conform to Christ. And we're not ashamed to be doing that work and we'll celebrate the grace of God in being generous to us in doing that work. So yeah, I mean, it was a good, um, it, it was a good moment, I think. So what's astonishing you? Um, I mean, I also thought, well, I'll just say, I, I, oh, I know what's astonishing you. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? The, is the sermon that was preached yeah. at Presbytery. I am going to say that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I will just say for the record, I really like Presbytery. I like going to Presbytery. I don't always like Presbytery meetings. I am thankful that I am not in charge of Presbytery meetings. I recognize that the people who are um, given the call of leading those organizations have a really, really, really hard job. And I hope, but suspect that sometimes I'm a reason that it's hard. <laughs> so um, I just think, you know, it's, it's very difficult. So, um, I, but I really enjoy, um, going to Presbytery because I just really like my colleagues and I like seeing people, um, and I like talking to people. So I wish as much as I appreciate, um, parts of it, I wish it could be more interactive, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. I was just saying like, what astonishes me, I think people always grumble and complain about like, oh, I got to go to Presbytery and I don't love doing it on a Saturday morning, but I will say, I mean, I just always really enjoy seeing people. Um, and, and I really enjoy being in worship, um, as a, as a worshiper and not in leadership in any way. I feel like that's a good, a great gift. And there were lots of moments in worship that were just very, um, much a gift to me. Um, um, Amantha Barbie's song was just really um, sanctified. And space. to let people know, it was a worship service centering Black History Month. Mm -hmm. um, but the but the sermon by our friend um, Sonia Allen, who's the pastor at Belfont Presbyterian, was just. Um, so powerful and generous and anointed. And I, um, I actually um, cited it significantly in my sermon the next day, but she, um, oh man, she told a story that, um, about how, you know, the Charlotte Presbytery, churches in the Charlotte Presbytery are older than the United States of America. And, and so there are seven sister churches, which are the pre-revolutionary war Presbyterian churches that still exist to this day. And part of the legacy of those churches, I think all seven, is that they, um, they all at one point spun out, air quotes around that word, um, historically black Presbyterian churches. And the reason is, is because people, not all, but people who founded those churches were enslavers. And so for a long period of that church's, those churches' histories, enslaved persons worshiped in the congregation. Um, I, I shared on Sunday in my sermon that they're one of those churches, which is just up the road from the Grove to this day, you can go um, to a, a previous sanctuary and see the iron ring on the floor um, that exists to this day where people were chained, um, in during worship. I mean, just the, the horror and the, the blasphemy and the desecration of that, um, just, it, it needs to be named. Um, and anyway, not anyway, it needs to be named those churches after, um, emancipation for a time, um, black people in those congregations were willing to stay and be reconciled with their white brothers and sisters who were former enslavers. Um, and when white members of those churches told them that they would have to stay in the balcony and continue to, um, observe and receive, but not lead. Um, that's when they left. They were willing to be brothers and sisters. They were not willing to stay in the balcony, which is, which is the spirit of God moving and, and just a sanctity that is not, we're just not worthy of the saints. And, um, when, 
uh, so so they left and they founded black Presbyterian churches. Um, and and Sonia, who is a black pastor of a historically black church and has been the moderator of the presbytery for the past year. And she was preaching a sermon as is customary when the leadership gavel is passed over. And she was talking about before her first um, leading of a meeting, she was walking in the sanctuary to center herself um, for the work. And it happened to be the sanctuary of a church that was one of those original seven sisters churches. Um, it was Rocky river Presbyterian church. I don't need to not say the name of that. And um, in a deep irony uh, uh, that is actually the church that the church that she currently pastors was spun off from and a white colleague came to talk with her and was talking with her about that history and asked her the question why what I can't understand is why did your ancestors stay why did you stay in this denomination and she preached a really powerful sermon based on a Pauline epistle just about how you know as part of Black History Month that that black Christians have always known who they truly were in Christ and have always had, because of their renewed minds in Christ, the ability to walk in that truth and not in the lies of the world. Um, and so it was very generous and very powerful. But the the thing that was just um, so anointed um, and such a catalyst, I, I hope, for the Presbytery, was she said in, in at the end of the sermon – she said this one thing and sat down and she said, you know, I turned to my colleague and I said, the question you need to wrestle with is not why did my ancestors stay? The question is, why did your ancestors stay? Because white people, why do we not wrestle with um, how we were so deeply captivated by sin? We were so deeply possessed by the spirit of white supremacy that we did not see the demonic way that we were desecrating and dividing the body of Christ, that that it's not just that black Christians should have walked out. White Christians should have, and I mean this, followed them. Um, and so I, I just really appreciate her lifting up that question um, because I definitely just will stand with my white colleague and say, I, it, it's not that it's not my natural thinking groove to ask that same question. Um, and and so I, I just appreciate, again, the generosity of the emotional labor and the theological leadership that Sonia was demonstrating by saying in love, that's the wrong question for you. Um, and, and it is the wrong question for us. And, um, so it was just a, a really powerful and anointed moment. And I, um, am grateful to be part of the body, which is the Peace USA and the Charlotte Presbytery. I'm enormously grateful for my colleagues who I really, just honor and treasure and just for the sanctity of the way that the Holy Spirit um, is a defier of expectations and, uh, and, and comes and the wind blows where it will. And it often blows through Presbytery meetings. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be part of it. So do you have an answer or. I mean, yes, I think, yes. I mean, I think uh, somebody was saying the other day that the most common miracle that Jesus did in the gospels was it you was uh, deliverances was exorcisms right was just a part of this the the lived tradition of Jesus that I think we really ignore in the quote modern quote 21st century Western church and I think to say like no one of the things is Jesus met physical needs Jesus um, you know fed hungry people and healed. Um, you know, people who were struggling with disease and, you know, spoke about liberation from bondage. But another thing that Jesus did a lot was to say, you people are possessed by spirits that are um, defiling you and, um, and, and, I mean, I don't, possessing you, right? And I think that we have this idea that like, oh, that's such a primitive way of seeing things. And, oh, it's, you know, all we can imagine is like some bad 1970s movie about the exorcist. And I remember like when I became a pastor and my family is not Christian. And so my sisters were like, what in the world? And my, and they were joking, but one of my sisters is always like, when are they going to teach you to do exorcisms? And I mean, because, it, because people are like, oh, that's this, 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 this archaic primitive thing that you're stuck with. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, People are possessed by these powers and principalities, these demonic powers and principalities of evil. And we are doing exorcisms intentionally when we are 
preaching and praying and saying people need deliverance, right? And this is Paul saying like, I don't have any human enemies. My enemies are not flesh and blood. My enemies are these powers and principalities and I'm attacking them and I'm at war with them, but I'm not at war with people. And Jesus was the same. And so I think, yeah, like I, I think that my ancestors stayed in those churches because the demonic power of white supremacy, which shows up not purporting to be evil, but purporting to be good, disguised as an angel of light saying like you are above and you are superior and you have dominion and you will deliver. I mean, like that's demonic and we were possessed by it. And the stumbling block of Christ, the way of the narrow way did not look attractive. And so we found a a way, which is just, a, you know, every generation finds a way to put Jesus as a mascot on the way of the empire. And that's why, you know, what is being called out in Revelation is not God's going to destroy the world. God made the world. The world is good. It's these empires and demonic systems that are crushing us that that the vision to John on Patmos is God saying, no, I will crush these systems. It's not the people. God does not hate people, but these demonic forces that are desecrating people made in the image of God, both the people who are crushed by them and the, you know, like, it's like, I mean, I don't watch any zombie stuff, but it's like, you know, you don't, God doesn't want to kill the zombies. God wants to kill the virus that turns people of life into a people of death. So that's what I think. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Wow. I think about this stuff a lot. What are you thinking? We're thinking about the same thing. We are. We yeah. are. And we are thinking about the ad campaign called He Gets Us. Um, let's see. Funded by a group called the Servant Foundation to the tune of $100 million. I just want y'all to know that Yolando has notes. Like, this is what I love. I have you, been thinking about I this. I know. And you just elevate this podcast <laughs> to a level that I just need everyone to know anything that is impressive about this. I'm being so serious right now. A, we would not have a podcast if it weren't for Yolando Hinton because you know that I don't know how to work any of this this equipment, nor do I know how to do anything. I don't know how to do anything but show up and talk. So anything else is all Yolando Hinton. A, and he he comes. He's prepared. He has notes. He has researched. I'm, I'm just, not. I'm not responding to no, any of like, that. I'm just like, I sent you a text. I'm like, hey, let's right. talk about this, and you're like, okay, yes, here are my notes. Thank so you. So he gets us ad campaign. First of all, they they run ads during the Super Bowl, not cheap. Uh, again, this whole ad campaign, they're spending a hundred million dollars. I first saw one of their ads months and months ago. It was the ad around uh, immigration, mm -hmm. featured um, a family looked like somewhere central South America. They're running from soldiers. And uh, at the end of the ad, you discover that it's really about Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus leaving Bethlehem because Herod is seeking to kill baby boys um, because he thinks that there's someone, a new king has been born that's going to take his throne. Right? Uh, the next ad that I remember seeing was uh, around Christmas time, and it was about um, a girl who uh, gets pregnant. Uh, she thinks her boyfriend is the father, finds out the boyfriend is not the father, and um, the baby is delivered. And, of course, the ad goes on to reference uh, Mary as a teen mother. And so, you know, I, I started seeing these ads, and I thought, hmm. Okay, I'm not quite sure the point, but I'm I'm not I'm not mad at this. Well, um, again, what really got my attention was the fact that they posted or ran ads during the Super Bowl, because um, again, that's not cheap, and it caused me and a lot of people to ask questions like, okay, so who is behind this? And what's the point? So again, this is by the Servant Foundation, sponsored by the Servant Foundation. And here's what they say they're about. This is from their website. Uh, they say, quote, He Gets Us is a movement to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible and his confounding love and forgiveness. Can't be mad at that. Goes on to say, we believe his word, example, and life have revel have 
have relevance in our lives today and offer hope for a better future. Again, I am not mad at that. And here is what I think they get right. They understand that when the average American thinks about the church, they see a group of people who talk a lot about what they're against, who seem angry and mostly politically conservative. And so they are seeking to present, uh, in their words, represent Jesus, uh, his love and kindness. I'm not mad at that. Here's the problem. I remember in the 80s and 90s, another movement funded by evangelical Christians just like this is, and that movement was a men's movement called Promise Keepers. Oh, yeah. And I think in some way the organizers had very good intentions. They wanted men to be more, to be more vulnerable in worship, to be more vulnerable with other men, and to be more present with their families. Not mad at that. The problem is they sought to do it within the 1950s, father knows best, patriarchal bubble. So it's not the bubble that's wrong. What we need is for men to be a little nicer and women stay in their place and everything is good. That's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. And so with this He Gets Us campaign, it seems to me that they are wanting to present a more inclusive, loving Jesus. But at the same time, this is being funded by wealthy, white, men, conservative evangelicals, as if to say, hey, let's be nicer to these minorities and women. So, you know, if they just stay in their place and we keep the structure the way it is, everything is good. And let's just be nicer. Jesus does not need to be rebranded. What the church needs is repentance. And they are seeking to present a kinder Jesus without doing the work of, the re of repentance. They are seeking to proclaim a Jesus who is open to all people. At the same time, they are the ones behind anti-immigration laws. They are the ones behind we can't teach African-American history in schools. They, it's, it's like if I were to look into your eyes and say to you sincerely that Jesus loves you, and then follow that up with a slap in your face. What I just said has no meaning, meaning my actions will speak louder than my words. And I have a deep, 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 deep suspicion of this group. I think, yeah, I mean, we, we did not talk, we saved this <laughs> to talk about it in real time. Like I just texted you and was like, hey, we need to, I don't want to talk about this on the podcast. So I didn't know where we would come down. I think my instinct is to start with saying like, look, it's called the servant foundation, right? Isn't that what it's called? So here's what I'm very aware of. They're not my servants, right? Like I know that, um, that, I mean, I just take really seriously that injunction in scripture, like who are you to judge another man's servants? Like these are folks who are accountable to Jesus and not to me. So I don't control how they use their money. I don't, you know, whatever. I, I just think it's important to note that, right? Like I, I don't, um, but I can share what do I, how do I respond to it? And I do think um, a couple things. One is I, I do think that that's what's, what is interesting is that people are saying, hey, the problem is the church, the body of Christ isn't growing and thriving and flourishing in the way that we would expect. And the solution is, oh, well, 
that's because people in the culture need to be reintroduced to Jesus. And I do think you're exactly right. Then it just, I mean, and I've been there, right? Like as we lead transformation in a local congregation, it's really easy to start out from the place of just being like, where, why aren't the people being faithful? Why are they going to brunch on Sunday? Why are they mowing their lawns on Sunday? Why aren't they good like us and coming to church like us? And so I think, you know, I do not think, and I've never thought that the problem is people have never seen a compelling ad or, or that they don't know the facts of the gospel. I think the problem is that people have not experienced Christian communities as authentic and powerful life-giving sources of healing and reconciliation. And so I think, I mean, to your point, I think that's, that is right. That what we as the church need to be doing right now is earnestly repenting and seeking God. I can see rightly or wrongly what I think everybody else should be doing, but what should I be doing? What's my part? I'm not responsible for other people. I'm responsible for my part. And I think, you know, we've talked before about wealthy congregations have the resources to put on great shows. Um, you know, drummer boys from the ceiling. Like it's not that we don't know how to entertain people or to, or, or to intellectually stimulate people, particularly folks with a lot of resources. The question is, you know, why, why are people not being, being able to look in their own lives and saying like, my life is different because someone who followed Jesus loved me in a compelling and salvific way, right? Because, because the gospel needs to have flesh on it. And right now we are the body of Christ. And so I think that's the problem with the, you know, with the dissonance that you're feeling between like, how can the people be behind who are behind this group also be behind legislation that's deeply threatening and wounding um, to you as a black person, to LGBTQ people, to immigrants, like it, it can feel pretty Orwellian. The very opposite of what they're saying about Jesus in these ads. Right. But I do think, you know, that's part of the, and I do think Orwellian is the case. Like it is this idea of like, well, if you, if you know this, then why, then why aren't we lining up and using our power that we have not to buy Super Bowl ads, but our power to influence people to go into the systems that they are a part of and say like, hey, we really want to address the culture of policing or legislation. But but wait, there's more. The other thing that actually really bothers me, I'm sorry, you should go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, the only thing I was going to say is that the people who are, no, let me be more specific. White, male, affluent pastors who are actually seeking to live out these values are being blasted by the same kind of groups that put on these ads. For example, if you just take someone like an Andy Stanley, yeah. Andy Stanley, at least from my vantage point as an African-American, is really seeking to live out and to um, uh, lead the people that he serves in the church according to these values. Mm -hmm. And yet the evangelical world beats him up all the time. Right. And he is, and he says, I am one of them. Right. And so that's why I, I just sense a deep kind of, kind of bait and switch here. Well, and I think it's just, it is like James, right? You can't just say Jesus was an immigrant. Your own mouth, like testifies against you. It's like Jesus saying to the Pharisees, like, why are you tithing on rue and mint and neglecting righteousness and justice? Like that, this is, but th I mean, all that to the side, there are two other issues that just really strike me. One is like, the tagline is really interesting to me. He gets us. Like, it's interesting that the center of the revelation is Jesus's relationship to us when Jesus came to say the kingdom of God is at hand, right? And so I think it's like, it makes sense to me that as an Americans, when you're thinking about how to market Jesus, you're like, oh, people are going to come to Jesus if they feel seen and if they feel understood. And obviously Jesus does see us and Jesus does understand us, but that doesn't save us. Like being understood doesn't free us. So you're I just think it's really yeah. interesting. Like what we need are churches that are less centered on our personal, individual lived experience and more centered on the 
the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, that of course we get to be a part of it, but it is not about us. And when our understanding of Jesus is Jesus, he gets me, then it's really easy to say, well, this is how I see the world, or this is what's threatening to me. So it must be threatening to Jesus, right? We don't have the ability to have cognitive dissonance against our own lived experience because we've been told that the way thing that makes Jesus, Jesus is he really understands and I'm safe with him and I feel good with him all the time. So that's my first issue. I mean, whatever. I just think that's that's not helpful. It's just, um, I think it's enabling the sickness that is in the American church and, and not just the evangelical church, right? Like just the consumer mentality, which is a power and principality that I think Jesus is trying to deliver us from. And I think they paid a marketing firm. I mean, this, sure. this is a marketing campaign. Right. And the other thing that just gets me, and I mean, I don't talk about this a lot in the podcast, but you know, I'm writing this book. <laughs> and so it's really interesting to me. And I get it. Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. You think, I want to make a big impact. Well, what's the biggest impact I can make for Jesus? It's a Super Bowl ad, right? Like, that. that is just... I understand why people are functioning and like Jesus deserves the biggest and the best. And this is literally the biggest, the best, the most exclusive thing that I could give Jesus is a Super Bowl ad. And I think, again, this is the problem that Jesus is so clear that that is not the way the kingdom comes. Like Jesus went out of his way to show us that the kingdom of God enters through, you know, what is hidden, what is lost, what is small, what is weak. And, and when the devil shows up at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry and says, I will center you, like I will give you the, these powers to feed everyone. I'll give you this spectacle power to jump off a bridge I or not a bridge, a temple. I will give you everyone's like uh, obedience and attention. And Jesus says like, I do not want that because that is not the way. So like, I'm not, I, I don't mean to be ugly about these people because there's plenty of ugliness in me. Right. And I do get that they are my brothers. And I do get that given their limited in particular lived experience, like this is what seems right in their eyes. But I think, you know, the goal is not to do what's right in our eyes for Jesus, but to have Jesus open our eyes to the way of the kingdom and to understand that it is going to seem counterproductive. Like I, I think the reality is the biggest impact that you could have for the body of Christ would be to anonymously use the resources that were given to that Super Bowl fund to whatever, build some affordable housing, you know, employ some people, do, you know, resource bread for the world or some legislative groups that are, you know, like to do that anonymously and to trust that spiritual growth is going to happen in spiritual ways. And like, so in a worldly sense, makes sense, buy the ad, make big impact. But just the fundamental idea that Jesus somehow needs better PR and that we have it and the ability to give it to Jesus. Like, again, I just, it just betrays, like, this is the problem when you have so much power and status and authority in the world is that you then just think, okay, this is the only way that it can happen. And, and we think as individual Christians, like, well, I better go get myself to the, to the biggest, richest, most powerful place and try to have influence there because that's the only way that Jesus can have influence. When the reality is we see that that's not how the kingdom of God came when Jesus was embodied on this earth. And he went out of his way to do hidden things, to work with small groups of people. Like he made disciples. He didn't make a movement. And we don't want to do the work of discipling because we're bad at it, because you can't put a nameplate on it, because it doesn't generate buzz. It generates changed lives. And I'm just saying like, once we recognize that, like these people aren't like, they're not my enemies. They're not bad. They're not, I mean, I vehemently disagree with a lot of their interpretation of scripture, let me say. And I don't say that to downplay the harm, but I'm just saying the bottom life is, line is, I just don't think that they have I think that their privilege has blinded them to the true beauty and power of the kingdom of God. Let the church say amen. Quick story. On Sunday, it was time to receive the offering at Dorida Church. And I felt moved to confess my great ignorance and embarrassment because I'm just learning about 
a woman in our community. In our, I've, I've lived in that neighborhood. I've served in that neighborhood for a long time. And I'm just learning about a woman named Miss Jeanette. Miss Jeanette has started an organization called the Champion House of Care. She cares for the homeless in our community. They come by her place, her office. They call her mom. That's how much, uh, that's how deep the relationship is. She cares for the children whose families can't afford permanent housing and are living in shabby hotels um, near the interstate. Um, she, she works to make sure they all have Christmas gifts. Mm -hmm. We were part of that this past year. She cares for adults with disabilities every day, uh, Monday through Friday. I'm just learning about Miss Jeanette. She has built such a reputation that these affluent, well-intentioned organizations come into the neighborhood saying, we want to work with kids, we want to work with the home. Mm -hmm. And these children, these brothers and sisters experiencing homelessness in this season will not move unless Miss Jeanette says that group is safe, mm -hmm. those people are safe. She has built that kind of reputation of caring. Mm -hmm. And her work is so easily unnoticed. Mm -hmm. It is mustard seed tiny mm -hmm. and yet has huge impact because it is foot washing work right yes. and like i think that's just what we don't understand is we still want to be like james and john the sons of zebedee like put me at the right and the left hand like put me up on a throne god let me rule for you and jesus is saying look the greatest among you is the one who serves and we're like yeah yeah great sermon I'm like no 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 the reality is you do not need permission. You do not need authority. You don't need anything to follow Jesus into serving the people controlling them. Nope. Starting an organization. Nope. Having a platform. Nope. But what Jesus says is the greatest among you is the one who serves. So if you want to be great in Christ, you can serve. The problem is many of us don't want to be great in Christ. We want Christ to make us great in the eyes of this fallen culture. And mm. I think that that's just such mm. a perfect example of saying like, do you want to be great or do you want to get credit? You know, do you want to be filled with the power of you Christ? Or do you want to use today. that? I know. I mean, <laughs> I just, I, but I just think that's so powerful. Like there could be, a, because she wasn't trying to start a movement, right? She has. She's wanting to serve. Right. And she started, she built trust and built culture by being trustworthy. She said she was sitting in her church, listening to her pastor preach and preach and preach and preach. And she felt the call of God to serve those in need. And she got to work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just the real, the real clue is like, we can get so frustrated and a, and an ad like the Super Bowl bad ad can have this unintended consequence of making us feel like, well, I'd serve Jesus if I had enough money to buy a Super Bowl ad. Yes. Instead of recognizing that the sphere of influence that you have cannot be purchased and the enemy of your soul would love to make you think that it matters not whether you practice your faith in your sphere of influence. It would be great if we could be convinced that everything that God is doing that matters is happening at some like elevated upper echelon level of whatever institutions are around us instead of looking at the gospel and saying the narrow way is to seek the kingdom in your midst. And that means whenever you and I sincerely but imperfectly try to live out out of the culture of the kingdom of God and try to use kingdom of God values and are willing to pay the price, the kingdom of God is in our midst. And that's when some of these supernatural things that we're all craving actually happen 
in response to these embodied kingdom of God, in response to us orienting ourselves towards the end breaking of the kingdom of God and saying, like, I don't have anything to offer Jesus except my own heart. So the great opportunity the church has in this season, it's like, okay, so we have lost a lot of people post-COVID. Um, but I'm sure a little, uh, many congregations are a lot like Derrida Church in that you have a few people in a sizable building on some sizable property. What can we do? Listen. We can serve our neighbors. We can serve our neighbors. Mm-hmm. We can serve our neighbors. And people are dying of loneliness. So I think it's important to recognize that it is not, we, while we certainly don't want to ignore people with needs right in front of us to recognize though that people with needs are not needs, right? They are people. And so they have um, leadership to offer, wisdom to offer. They're not problems for us to solve. And also to recognize that there are people around us who need not to be used in our programs, but who need to be welcomed, who need to be invited into meaningful, healthy community. And, and again, we can do that. And we're, we're not responsible for anyone else's answers to our invitations. We're not responsible for the fruit that gets born, but we are responsible for our invitations and we are responsible for our posture of service or not. And so I think that's, that's just the great, the great flip, um, that, that we need to understand that we have a lot of power. Um, what we need is eyes to see it. And then a holy urgency about walking it out with the yoke that is easy (laughs) with understanding that our limits are gifts and that God doesn't need us to be bigger than we are or to have more than we have. Like we just, and then we'll stop. But like, we just had a stewardship conversation at the Grove and I'm like, look, here's the bottom line. We already have everything we need to be faithful in this season. We already have it. So in this season, we might not get to do the ministry that we quote want to do, but we have everything we need to be faithful to God in this season. And we need to know that and reorient ourselves towards the only, the only power I have to, is to get up today and say, how can I be faithful in these circumstances? And if I discover that I haven't been, then how can I repent unashamedly and and open myself to, to be filled with the grace and renewal of Jesus? That That's it. That's just so hard, I think, for people to hear because it sounds like preacher talk. It wow. sounds like, you know what, you're supposed to say that because right. you're, you are a preacher. But it really is it's true. It's the way. I mean, it's it the way, true. right? Yeah. Like that, when they say Jesus and is the way, so it's the way. there are so many other voices saying the opposite, right. saying you need a Super Bowl ad. Right. Well, and the thing is, yeah, this is, I was just listening to the um, Holy Post podcast the other day, and they were talking about a Willow Creek assessment of all of their programming, and they did a whole huge study, and it was called Renewal, I think. And what they discovered was the thing that makes a difference in people's lives is prayer, worship, studying the Bible and acts of service. And so then they were going to reorient the church around that. And I'm not mad at Willow Creek. Also, I understand that Bill Hybels is a, is a human with flaws and is a victim of the culture, I think, and a, and a perpetrator. I'm not, but I'm just saying like, I, we personally have experienced a lot of goodness from the, um, leadership Academy leadership summit. summit. Um, but, but what, what happened? And I think post his leaving was they just sort of dropped this thing and someone said like why 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 did did it just get dropped and they said well because you 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 can't build a program around those things you can't sell it i mean the reality is the things that we have that make a difference you already have them you we you and i we are absolutely 100% able to center our lives around prayer worship service and community like we, we can do that. We don't need anyone's permission. We don't need to buy a book. We don't need to enroll in a summit. We don't need to go to a program. Like we can do it. We already have all the tools that we need. It's just that we want something, I don't know, that seems more exciting. Like our God is our stomach. So we just want something that seems cooler or elite or special or sexier or more pleasurable instead of just saying like, these are the tools of the kingdom. Our board of elders had a meeting just last night and, um, Someone was saying, well, you know what? We need, we need more study. We need more. I said, hey, what if 
what if we simply started doing right. what we already know to do? Right. And just trust and that, that the Lord will meet us on the yes, way. And let that lead us into, right. oh, you know what? We need more prayer because right. we're doing this thing and we, we come up against our limitations. We, we, right. right. Let that be the we already We already have the map for the first step. Yeah. Right. Like we already have the map. We already have a savior. No one else is coming and we don't need anyone else. What we need is to say, okay, Lord, I don't know what faithfulness in three months or six months or two years. I don't know what people should be doing at the highest echelons of government, of government or what should be, you know, but I know what I need to do to be a good steward of my life. I don't, or I know what tools I need to use to be grafted to the vine in my life right here. And I surrender to you the results of that. That's, that's it. So we have to stop talking because we're very busy and important people. <laughs> So, wrong <laughs> yeah no true true um so thank you all so much for listening to us this week and if you want to find out more about what god is doing at god's church derida press you need to go to their website you need to go there and it is www derida he's just looking at me <laughs> www derida church slash faith dot shoot derida church dot faith life sites dot com what no well, you said it so fast derida <laughs> deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. See, I just don't trust myself. But yes, D-E-R-I-T-A. Go and find their podcast. Go and find their YouTube channel. Do yourself a favor. Watch some of Yolanda's messages. Go and worship with them at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which I do know, thegrovecharlotte.org. Go to our podcast and our YouTube channel. Just uh, look for the green tree because there's a lot of groves out there you can um get our podcast on itunes or you know wherever you get your podcasts because we're like that and you can worship with us at 10 o'clock the dress code is wear clothes you know just come when you can (laughs) leave when you're ready Uh, we'll be glad to have you thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week